Hi, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt. So today we're continuing our um, three-part series on the different categories of actors when it comes to nuclear weapons. So um, last episode, we focused on states, two states that already have nuclear weapons and the critical perspectives on those politics. And today we are looking at those who want nuclear weapons and critical perspectives on those politics. So today we'll be talking about Iran and North Korea. Yeah, and it's, they both have really interesting backstories. I don't know if we'll touch on those a little bit, maybe, maybe not. But um, we'll also talk about, you know, what are some of the theories that are at play here? What help, what helps to explain why some of these countries want nuclear weapons? And why do other countries want to stop them? Actually, I feel like the backstory on these nuclear programs is really important for the critical perspectives mm -hmm. because I mean, critical perspectives often take into account context is like everything. Um, and I know for Iran, I know mostly about Iran's history with nuclear weapons. I think it's very important. Um, so I guess I'll, I can go ahead and give yeah. a little background on Iran. Go for it. Um, so there, I, and I think what my purpose is for explaining their history is it's not like, I think how they get painted in like US media a lot is Iran just right out of the gate wants, wants nuclear weapons and nothing else. They want them to destroy the United States. And it's like, well, not necessarily. So fun fact that I think most, well, most people, and the general public might not know, the United States actually gave Iran their nuclear program in like, like after World War II, because they were part of Eisenhower's program called Atoms for Peace. And so it was about nuclear development for peaceful purposes and technology and whatnot, um, which at the time, there was a friendly, well, friendly towards the US regime in power in Iran. Um, but in 1979, when that regime changed um, towards a very anti-American, anti-Western regime. Um, the United States obviously had some concerns about where this nuclear weapons or where the nuclear program was heading because they did not want it to turn into weapons. And actually for the first 10 years of the new regime, like nine, 10 years, the, um, the leadership was like, no, we're not pursuing nuclear weapons. That's very antithetical to Islam. Um, and so they didn't even have their nuclear program, but when the second Supreme leader came into power, which who is still in power now, um, he decided to restart the nuclear program. And, you know, he said like, we don't want nuclear weapons. They've, Iran has sort of maintained that they don't want nuclear weapons, um, that it would be antithetical to Islam. And a lot of the leadership claims to feel that way. Um, but there's some obviously disbelief in the international community about whether or whether or not they do want nuclear weapons. Most people would say, yeah, they're, they're trying to get nuclear weapons and anything they say um, that hints, oh, no, they don't. They want it for people, peaceful or research purposes or whatever. That's just propaganda essentially and not how they actually feel, just an excuse. I don't know, and I don't know as much about the history of North Korea, but you do. And so I can, mm -hmm. 
even in the history of Iran, I can see where these like, especially colonial and imperial um, mentalities from the United States are still impacting um, nuclear politics between Iran and the United States today. And I didn't know if that was at all evident in North Korea's history and how that informs their current politics, or if you see any connections between the history. I think it's interesting because I, you know, when I was in high school and college, I was like, North Korea and Iran are the same, like both rogue states, you know, both doing things that the U.S. doesn't want that are uh, not in our national interest for them to do so. But the more I've learned about North Korea, the more I've realized how distinct it is from Iran's nuclear development. So they have actually been um, in the process of developing nuclear research, technology, and weapons since the 1950s. And even, you know, through the 90s, they were very much under the radar saying, you know, we're creating these plans, we're trying to work with the Soviet Union, China won't work with us. But, you know, that makes sense because they're neighbors. We can, you can understand why China would not want uh, North Korea to have a nuclear weapon. I mean, fair, nukes are, nukes are bad in general, as we said. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very fair. Um, but it was interesting because obviously for a while, the U.S. actually had nuclear weapons in South Korea up until 1991. And this was a huge part of the reason that North Korea wanted nuclear weapons because they felt unsafe and not having these weapons was a threat to their national safety. Um, but in 1991, the then U.S. President Bush uh, announced that they would withdraw the weapons from South Korea. They both signed this joint declaration on the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which was one of these, oh, we're not going to manufacture nukes, we're not going to process them, store them, etc. Um, but per most nuclear arrangements, it was not really implemented. And that's sort of the story of North Korea that has continued over and over again. There's this, okay, revival of negotiations, revival of talks, we're going to figure out a way to de-escalate this region. But it just never seems to work because North Korea sees the U.S. as very imperial, kind of going back to this colonial mentality, and the U.S. sees North Korea as this threat to its security. So there's just not really, right now at least, and there has not been in the past, the policy opportunity for these two countries to really talk effectively. And their histories between Iran and North Korea are so different, but you do see this same underlying logic I feel mm -hmm. in terms of, look, we're scared of the United States and this is the only way we can really protect ourselves. But the United States, I mean, we talked about this in past episodes, but someone with a nuclear weapon is telling you to do something. You, I, I mean- You do there's it. There's an yeah. element of coercion there, obviously, <laughs> but you do it because- yeah, you know what the threat of like nuclear weapons and yeah, there's a, this questionability of like, but would anyone ever use nuclear weapons again? Like back to this idea of a nuclear taboo, like would, would we, would we actually use nuclear weapons on Iran or North Korea if it came down to it? And it's like, okay, I think if Donald Trump got the opportunity like actually had a legitimate reason or 
could spin it to Mm -hmm. be this like legitimate reason I think he would have you know like President Bush yeah talked about like no presidents have like taken it off the table completely or else they would have denuclearized themselves you know so it's like I think it's totally rational like obviously I the addition of any nuclear weapons in the world and from my perspective, is bad. And I think it's totally rational that North Korea and Iran would be pursuing these nuclear weapons for their own safety, just to make them like legitimate actors in the eyes of the United States, just to be taken seriously. Well, I think it's like, as you said, it's totally rational on both sides of that argument, right? Like, I mean, personally, do I want two more countries to have nuclear weapons? No, like (laughs) I would rather they don't. But at the same time, you know, the trouble I think comes when we say, well, we can have them, but you can't. And then like taking that critical perspective is like, well, why, what, what reason do you have that you think that you're more responsible? Is it because you're a white country? Is it because you're Western and therefore rational? And, you know, somewhere like Iran, some places like Iran and North Korea are not because they happen to have a different way of seeing the world. Probably. <laughs> like, And you're touching on like a super important point. Like it's not a coincidence that these states have very different ideologies from the United States and have this very distinctly like anti-US, anti-imperial outlook on international politics. And so from the perspective of the United States, like, yeah, that's alarming. It's like, oh, these people hate us and they want nuclear weapons. Oh God. <laughs> like- <laughs> I get it, but I mean, I think this just goes back to really the ultimate point. There shouldn't be nukes. Like there should not be nuclear weapons in the world because you will always have this, this struggle. Well, if my neighbor who hates me has them, well, then I need them. And I think that is also sort of the fear in, um, among like Middle East scholars too, is if Iran actually does acquire a nuclear weapon, what will that do to um, like regional tensions within the Middle East? Will Saudi Arabia want one given that Iran is their mortal enemy? Like, well, shit, if they have one, we want one too. Yeah. So, I mean, you just see how proliferation kind of gets out of hand. No. And I think it's, that's what's so tricky about the whole situation. Cause on one hand, you, you know, there's, proliferation is I I think just bad like at its core of these weapons but who has the ethical right to say that someone should or shouldn't have them if other if other people have them I don't think there's you know if you say like oh well the UN should decide that well no the UN is western the UN is biased like the U.S. doesn't have the right to say that because there's nothing about, I think, our country that makes us more legitimate or more of a leader in terms of saying, like, we should say who can and cannot have this power. But I don't know. It just leads to a bit of a tricky thing where you don't want to say, yes, p- proliferate these things everywhere. But on the other, how do you decide? What, how, does, how does that path go in a way that's satisfying for anyone? I know, uh, I can't remember who the author was for the life of me, but I know there's an argument out there um, that they're basically saying everyone should have nuclear weapons because that would effectively be like no one having nuclear weapons because 
you know, it just like neutralizes or they argue that it like neutralizes the, like the risk, the threat that comes from them because no one would use them if everyone had them. No one would be able to threaten each other with them. So what's the point? And it's like, well, then we might as well get to no nuclear weapons. But because uh, I, I mean, it's sort of like you were saying, the U.S. has never taken it off the table for dealing with either Iran or North Korea. They've never done it, but they continue to modernize nuclear weapons technology, right? And make more precise bombs, more larger bombs i mean there's this website tactical nukes tactical uh, nukes that's the most insidious like phrasing mm-hmm. i've ever heard because they're what they're supposed to be small yeah easily portable precise and it's like that makes them seem so harmless and it's they're, they're still not. nuclear weapons <laughs> they're still our nuclear technology is way more powerful now than it was when bombs were dropped in japan and it's like these are not like the risk of even a quote-unquote tactical nuclear weapon is still catastrophic well and i think that goes to like i mean a feminist perspective of looking at this right like what kind of language are we using to talk about this tactical i mean i don't know what that's coded in i'm sure it's male because, you know, military. Oh, yeah, that seems like strategy, military, yeah. logical, you know. But at the same time, I guess tactical to me means usable. That's like the term, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. you would say like a different word. But there's this website. We will link it in our show notes. It's super disturbing. Um, but it has, you can choose like different cities or you can choose a specific part on a map. And then it has a drop-down list of all the different like bombs that have been publicly introduced. So you can say like, oh, I want to, what happened if a Hiroshima-sized bomb was dropped on the U.S.? And then you look at ones that have been produced in the last 10 years and it's like hundreds of magnitudes larger. And it's like, why, why are you creating these? What, what possible purpose does it serve except to feed the military industrial complex? What, what are we doing here? That just makes me even more mad because we spend trillions and trillions of dollars to like modernize and upkeep these weapons because, you know, I mean, logically, unstable nuclear weapons are also dangerous. So you have to upkeep them. And it's like, think about where those trillions and trillions of dollars could go. They could go to schools. United States could get socialized medicine. What a thought. Oh my God. What a thought. (laughs) Free healthcare, free you know, public. I haven't, even, I haven't even thought about that, but like, yeah. think about the environment in North Korea. I mean, there's not that many photos, right? We don't really see what's happening there, but from what you do see, it is not the most like hospitable of environments. And how much of that is from like, how many tests have they done now? Like at least, at least six, at least six mm-hmm. different tests inside mountains, like underground. What is that doing? to the like ground that they live on and the earth in that part, that's not just going to stay there. Like that's going to go to South Korea. That will go to China. Like, you know, there's even, we talked about this in our first episode on nukes, but the way that the testing in the Pacific has legitimately changed what chemicals we have in our bodies. That's like craziness to me. Very much. Another thing I thought was really interesting to bring it back to Iran and North Korea is this process of sanctioning and different like diplomatic efforts. Um, 
And there's this really interesting theory. It's not necessarily critical, but it's still very interesting. It's called like the three streams theories of policy. And this person, Kingdon, they said like, okay, well, there's a policy stream, a problem stream, and a politics stream. And the problem stream is like something outside happens, um, some kind of problem is constructed. And then the policy stream is like a policy can only survive if it has technical feasibility, if it's like acceptable in terms of values and it anticipates the future. And then the politics stream is like whether policy proposals are adopted. So the public mood, pressure campaigns, elections, all of that. And this theory says like all of these streams have to come together to create this window of opportunity, sort of like this very small policy window that you're like, okay, I have to take advantage of this. Like, let's go. And that's how something like, you know, the JCPOA was even like possible. Right. But then when I think about, I was thinking about this in terms of like a longer time scale. So it was possible in that one moment when all of these factors conspired to come together to make this policy, this diplomacy possible. But that's clearly not the case now, right? That wasn't the case in the past. So how does one engage with states like Iran and North Korea if these windows are opening and closing all the time and there's really no permanent way of making that relationship? I think that's so hard also because there's so much like among states too there's just so much mistrust and like room Mm -hmm. for error room for miscalculation um which we've seen also in so many nuclear conflicts like how many times have the U.S. and Russia almost gone to war because you know something was launched and it wasn't communicated properly or um like nuclear weapons were moved and not communicated properly and it's like miscommunication is a huge huge concern when it comes to these politics and especially like which greatly affects these windows of opportunity as well. Yeah. It also just kind of makes me think what happens to the people in states and the states themselves when you're in this constant state of want, like when all, all of your efforts, let's, let's call it a whole of government approach, like (laughs) obtaining nuclear weapons. How does that how does that change the way in which tech techniques of government and ways of thinking go? Because what happens, let's say both North, both North Korea and Iran get nuclear weapons. They've done it. Success. Congratulations. But what happens after that if you've spent the last 50 years or 20 or 10 only thinking, only creating policies and organizational like processes of your state uh, aspiration to get these? Mm-hmm. So like, oh, we have them. What now? What now? <laughs> I mean, from North Korea's perspective, is it like building their arsenal? I mean, we know you don't really need that many nuclear weapons. You need one (laughs) to do lots of damage. But in terms of like, I guess the next step is like modernization and upkeep or growing your arsenal or making sure like you know, making sure the United States doesn't know where they're located so they can't, you know, I mean, can you blow up a nuclear weapon? Like that's, that's a no. I don't know. I feel like, like, I don't know. Like how would you take out a nuclear weapon? That just seems 
I guess you just assemble. Do you disassemble it? Disassemble, right. Like (laughs) if we, if you're going to get rid of a nuclear weapon, you disassemble it. But in terms of like keeping it safe from attack from other countries and then Iran, I think, I think it would be really interesting to see like where their internal politics would go after achieving a nuclear weapon, because I know um, I'll have to find the um, like the public opinion reports, but Mm -hmm. public opinion is not like on the side of nuclear weapons. Like there's a very significant number of Iranians that do not want nuclear weapons. And especially like within the religious community, it's like, no, of, of course, this is antithetical to Islam. It like, realistically, it should be antithetical to all religions, but you know, yeah, it's, I was looking at some polls from per usual in like 2011 or 2012. And they had a lot of really interesting questions about, you know, are you comfortable? Like what, in what cases are you comfortable with the U S using a nuclear weapon? 30% of people were like, if Iran were to get nuclear weapons, I would want you to bomb like an Iranian nuclear facility. And I'm like with nuclear weapons. That just seems bad. <laughs> I mean, even with like conventional weapons. I know. Well, because I'm like, have you thought that through? Have you thought when you were answering, yes, I want to use nuclear weapons on Iran. Have you thought about the consequences of that action? I think they in just its entirety. It. Yeah. Like, it's No, you have not. And it's like, maybe you don't like have the resources like don't know about (laughs) what the effects of that would be but I'm just like anyone this is just my like personal rant now like anyone that says they want to use nuclear weapons on another country I'm like what on earth like do you not see how disruptive that would be like you would not be safer if a nuclear weapon you would be way less safe if a nuclear weapon was exploded I mean anywhere in the When I think about that, I was listening to a podcast. um, It's Dan, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Oh my God. I love Hardcore uh, History. Have you been listening to the Supernova in the East series? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, for our listeners, you've got to listen to it. It's five parts now. Um, Or no, I'm sorry. Six parts. They're all around five hours. It's so worth it. They used to be. I haven't listened to Hardcore History in so long, but all the episodes were like hours and hours long. Yeah. Well, the one that I'm listening to, it's about Japan and it's about the lead up. It's essentially all about World War II, but like what, what kind of Japanese society existed before then? What was happening in the Pacific theater? And like, as someone who pretty much focused on the European theater and studying World War II, it's really interesting, but the last episode I just listened to, it was the final episode and it was very, is troubling the word I want to use? Maybe. It was very troubling <laughs> because um, it was about the nuclear weapon. It was right. It was about the use of the U.S. nuclear weapon on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, most of this, we know, we know how many people died. It's, it's very clear that a lot of people died. People died from radiation and the actual blast. But what he does really well and what I think would maybe, what I hope would make people more cautious is that he tells these personal stories of survivors that have been saved. Um, and it's, it is horrifying to listen to what happened to these people 
like this, the story of this mother who I, whose child was a, a building fell on top of her. And, you know, she had to leave her child because she would have died. And she was like, I don't want to die. And I'm sorry. And just like hearing that story and knowing that there are countless other ones and you want to do that again. Mm-hmm. Like, Those I think these were melted off. Yeah. Like, imagine my wife, my parents, my grandparents, like yeah. imagine them dying because of this, because of what some stupid like political fight that, that I just and to wish that on or think that, that would be acceptable to do to any other human being is just so beyond comprehensible to me. And I think tying it back to critical perspectives, like that's where racism comes into play. And yeah. we talked about this last episode, but there's this history of the United States only even considering using nuclear weapons on non-white countries. Like we wouldn't never do this or consider doing this to France, the United Kingdom, Australia, anything like that. And people are like, well, we don't have issues with them. And it's like, okay, there have been times where we've had issues with white countries as well. And it's just nuclear weapons were just not even so obviously not on the table and I think what's interesting is it all comes back to framing right like what makes someone in the U.S. a person or a politician say that we're comfortable using talking about using nuclear weapons on non-western countries like Iran and North Korea it comes back to the framing of rogue states feminist theory for example and post-structuralism and the way that we talk about these other countries and turn them into non-human things, I think is so important, you know, for like, oh, they're outlier in the international system, they're state sponsors of terrorism, the yada, yada. Like, yes, in many cases they are doing those things, but we don't think about the people that live there. And like, states are not just states, they're they're people that form a nation. Also, you don't, from an objective standpoint, well, I feel like I can't even really be objective, but it's like Iran does some things that I'm not cool yeah. with, especially like militarily. But it's like, I think it's irresponsible to just be like, well, they're terrorists. They're this, mm-hmm. they're that. Because those labels carry a lot of political weight and you're not, it misses, it has no analysis of what, like structural conditions led them to those decisions and to those actions where you're coming from makes so true right like I think the way we think traditionally about like politics and like from Washington DC it's all about oh the future how are we going to think about how to move forward and where we are now whereas they're not actually thinking about how we got to where we are And like why the world is the way we are. And like you said, there are structural factors, there are cultural factors, all of these things that really matter when we're talking about states like these and people like these. And when we ignore that and just say, we're labeling both Iran and North Korea as rogue states, how will we deal with them in the future? You're missing, you know, what, 80% of that story. Mm -hmm. Context is so important. And then it's like, it really frustrates me to see things like 
you know, North Korea is starving its people. Mm-hmm. It's using all its money to build these nuclear weapons and it's starving its people. And it's like, okay, like that is one take on it. The people, people in North Korea don't have food. That might just be an objective mm-hmm. fact. And it's like, who's imposing sanctions on them that is preventing the food from getting to the people in North Korea. And it's, I think the media spin and just the way the United States frames yeah. these issues is just from a critical perspective, so frustrating because you're missing, like you said, so much of the story. And it's not, it's not fair just to demonize these states because when you do that, you all, you lose the humanity and that's, you lose the humanity of the people in the countries. And that's where like, racism and imperialism come into play well these people are inhuman and -hmm. we will treat them like they're inhuman and we will go into their country or interfere with their domestic politics and tell them how to do it better and that's imperialism that's colonialism yeah and that's this just under this idea that underlies everything that we are the only way that a state can be. This is the only way a country, a culture can develop. You have to have our technology. You have to want to be in the same kind of economy, the same kind of separation between church and state. All of those are necessary. And if you don't do that, then there's something wrong with you. And that at its core is so hierarchical, you know, and there's just nothing more to say. <laughs> nothing more to say. I always have this in, internal struggle when talking about states like North Korea and Iran. And I know more about like Iranian politics and their like military proxies that they have throughout the region. And I'm like, in my head, I think, these are bad things. Like they should not be doing them. And then I'm like, is that just my way of being socialized to think about it? How, like, why is Iran doing this? Is it just this purely, they want regional domination and they want to like spread ill will, which is like what the Mm. United States says, or is it like, are there other reasons? And I think people would think I'm like crazy because it's like, no, they are killing people. Like they are bad actors. Like there's not more to this. And I just think if you come from this perspective that there's not more to it, that just falls into a really big trap. And so I'm always so hesitant to like write about some of these things or even to talk about some of these things, because I'm like, what, what am I missing? What am I not understanding? What am I being ignorant about? Mm. What narrative am I perpetuating by talking about these things? You like made a very good point there. Cause when you were talking about that, I was like, well, what about the U S and Latin America in like the second half of the 20th century? Right. How is that? I don't want to say, how is that any different, but there are so many comparisons to be made where we're like, oh, you can't strive for regional domination, ill will, whatever that's wrong objectively. Well, it seems like we were going around assassinating a lot of leaders and propping up uh, violent groups and causing a lot of death to people that lived there for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's only okay because 
we somehow had democratic intentions, which makes that something to gloss over. Or even in Iraq, just how many, like, how many people have been slaughtered at the hands of the American military who, from their perspective, probably consider terrorists? Yeah. I think the problem is that there's no objective, like, there's no way to put yourself objectively outside of how have I been socialized? How am I viewing this? Because you're always surrounded by influences all the time. And I think it's really analytically useful to put yourself in the other country's shoes and say, if I were a small country and there was a very large country with a lot of nuclear weapons trying to dominate me, what would I do to try to be safe and to try to protect my people? That, that I think is just, it, it increases a lot of empathetic attention to the problem, which in of itself is really necessary when we're talking about these kind of places in the world. 100%. Well, no one, no one country's priorities can or should be more important. That's why we're supposed to have institutions, like in theory, in like the brightest idealistic theory lens you could use. The point of having institute, international institutions is to bring countries together and to have them compromise on things so that no one is 100% happy, but everyone's like 50%, okay. <laughs> it's just unfortunate that that never happens because it begs the question, who created those institutions? What kind of system are they operating under, et cetera? Um, I just think it's, I don't know, I don't want to be a downer, but I don't really see any kind of resolution to either Iran or no. North Korea. <laughs> I don't either. And it's like, it's this cultural shift that would have to happen in the way that we interact with one another. There would have to be like, you know, trust number one, like we just trust you it, you know, which there's none. And so, yeah, it seems kind of like hopeless because it's like, well, we ever get there. Um, I mean, maybe with more, restorative justice policies like worldwide in different countries that can slowly bleed into other situations too like well clearly this is just not a good time but at least in Canada there's the truth and reconciliation commission right like if we could all have something like that where you know, because not every country, but many countries have these awful events in their past that, still, I mean, of course the United States does, and we should hundred percent have some sort of national truth and reconciliation commission, even if it's thousands of pages, just to have people be able to express their stories and say, yeah. this is how I was wrong. This is how my family has been wronged over time. Having that there, I think does in some way create a culture where we're more comfortable in saying that we're wrong. Because that's like so missing in the United States. Now, when do we ever say, oh, we were wrong about that. Let's, you know, how can I fix this? It's, there's never any admission of guilt to these things. And that's such, I think, a tragedy in so many ways, because think about how many problems in the world are just compounded because of a lack of acknowledgement of what past wrongs and it's like when you don't come to like a resolution or a form of closure of course these things like build on one another and get worse yeah I mean 
maybe someday gradually this will improve, but yeah, I don't see no, it. Happening. I just feel sad. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, like <laughs> I think this was a really interesting, ultimately sad, but a useful episode for people thinking about the context of states wanting to get nuclear weapons or any kind of states that are coded as bad or wrong in the terms of Western hegemony. And there's a lot to unpack behind like these nuclear power politics and why, like why the United States is so focused on non-proliferation in some cases and not in others. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, If you have any feedback, comments, questions, concerns, things we missed or got wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Email us at disruptrcp at gmail.com or our DMs. You can slide into them at disruptrcp on Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.